You're probably thinking that uh, Daniel read the wrong passage. He did not. I asked him to read that passage, 1 Kings 17. However, we're in 2 Kings 4. Turn to 2 Kings 4. I had a reason for that. <clears throat> More suffering, by the way, folks. Sorry about that. Mike's been talk, talking about suffering. And somebody said, hey, there are some people said to him, hey, you're talking about suffering quite a bit. Yeah, we're in 1 Peter. <laughs> but uh, more suffering to come. Sorry about that tonight. Life is unpredictable, right? To say the least, no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. No one has the first clue. Received word yesterday, I believe it was, someone uh, passed away. Just never know. Um, take Job, for example. He had no idea what was about to happen to him. <laughs> In the book of Job, he had no idea, first of all, the Lord would bless him with children. He didn't know he would have all those children, and yet it says in Job 1-2, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. What a great blessing, right? Ten children. Well, back then they thought it was a great blessing, all right? Today in America, they don't think that at all. They think you're out of your mind if you have ten children. If you have four or five children, they think you're crazy. How are you going to afford those children? Well, somehow the Lord has a way of helping you make that happen, right? But at any rate, ten children, what a great blessing. I'm sure every child was a great source of joy to him. You know, children are born, you're such a great source of joy, right? Uh, and he experienced the truth of Psalm 127, verses 3 and 4, which says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is, his, is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man, it says, not miserable is the man. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. So how happy Job must have been, right? But a sad day came. A sad day came when Satan asked permission from the Lord to go after Job, to go after his family, to go after all he had. And soon he received devastating news. This is devastating news in Job. And here's the news he got. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell, and, on, and it fell on the young people, and they died. They died. What a great tragedy. What devastating news he received. Job did say in response, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be in the name of the Lord. That's true. He did say that, but that's not the end of the story. As you read through the book of Job, you can feel his pain. From the loss he experienced. You can feel deeply his pain. He was deeply affected by the loss of his children. All that had happened to him. Life is like that, isn't it? One day you could have great blessing from God. The next day you could have great tragedy also within the providence of God. Both are true. That is what we have in 2 Kings chapter 4. Because we're going to look at the woman of Shunem. The Shunammite woman. Now the Lord had done a miracle... At the beginning of this chapter, there's several miracles. I think there's five miracles in 2 Kings chapter 4, all done by the hand of Elijah the Lord working through him. But the Lord had done a miracle for the widow woman at the beginning of uh, 2 Kings 4, the first seven verses. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and then we had something happen. We had Martin Luther come last week, didn't we? Martin Luther. So I didn't want to interfere with Martin Luther. Not God forbid that I should interfere with a great reformer, right? So we let him have the pulpit that night. But... The Lord had done a great miracle for the widow woman by relieving her great debt, extreme debt she was in, and her credit, the creditor was coming to take her two children and make them slaves because back in that day, they had to pay off what they earned, what they owed with, in that way. And so 
the Lord worked there to provide for her needs. Now the Lord's going to work in a wealthy woman. Not a poor widow woman, but a wealthy woman. The, the, Elijah's going to counter. And uh, we have in this section three thoughts. Number one, we have an un- unexpected gift. That's what I'm talking about tonight, an unexpected gift. Secondly, we have an unexpected tragedy. And thirdly, a supernatural ending. We'll look at those one by one. First of all, an unexpected gift. Look at 2 Kings 4, verse 8. There came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. Verse 8 says, Elijah passed over to Shunem. That's about 20 miles from where he's staying in Mount Carmel. Shunem is on the road between Samaria and Carmel, and a well-traveled road. He seems to have gone, made this trip often. A woman lived in Shunem that the NASB calls prominent. The word is literally great. It usually means a woman who's wealthy or of a great social position, one of the two, or maybe both, social influence. And so in this, she is totally unlike the woman we saw earlier in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. That woman was a widow. This woman is married. That woman was in debt up to her eyeballs. This woman is wealthy, has all the money she needs. That woman had two sons. This woman has no sons. That woman could not even think, the widow could not even think of caring for anyone else except her own family. Couldn't even do that. And yet this woman reaches out to care for Elisha. The Lord uses Elisha to, to, to minister to both women. By the way, we're called to, mer- to minister to all people regardless of their economic position in life. It doesn't matter if they're poor or rich or somewhere in between. We're called to minister to everybody. But before Elisha ministers to, him, to, to her, she ministers to him. Notice her hospitality in verses 8 to 10. Verse 8 again. Now, woman, there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, she turned in there to, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled chamber, upper chamber. Let us set a bed for, for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, and it shall be, when he comes to us, uh, that he can turn in there. And so Elisha uh, is, is, is on his journey to Shunem going on his journey, passing through there. The prominent woman sees him. She persuades him to eat. The word persuade is a very strong term. means she constrained him. She begged him. She urged him, pleaded with him. She didn't do it because she had to. She did it because she wanted to. She insisted that he eat there. She would not take no for an answer, and it becomes a habit every time he goes into town. Same thing happens. Now, I personally think that she knew who Elijah was. Uh, He was known to many people, many of the Lord's people, at that time, and uh, the statement in verse 9, by the way, uh, where it says, uh, she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually, uh, <clears throat> does not mean she had no idea who he was at first. The statement literally is this. She said to her husband, Behold, I, now I know that the, this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. In other words, I know he's holy because of his testimony. I've seen him. He keeps coming here to, our, to eat at our house, and I can, I can tell not only... That he's, yeah, he's Elijah the prophet, but every time I see this guy, I notice that his holy character stands out. I can see it in his speech. She could see it in his behavior. She could see it in his attitude and all these things. She had heard of him, yes, but now she sees him and she says, I know. What I've seen now, this is a holy man of God. It's very obvious. His presence in the home shows that he is just that. He is truly a holy man of God. All you had to do was be around Elisha. And it wasn't long before you found out This is a different guy. This is a man of God. You know, as people get to know us, isn't this what they should sense about believers? 
they should sense that we're something different about us. Or, you know, we don't, I don't mean we put on a show of outward spirituality, trying to impress people, trying to convince people that we're something that we're not. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying because we walk with God as a course of life, because we do this, people can see, hey, there's something different about those people down there. Grace Bible Church can't help but be noticed by other people. That something different there. Their character is different. Different. We're not trying to impress people, but we, we, we're just living out who we are in Christ. That's all. And that's what Elisha was doing, just simply being who he was in, in, in the Lord. This lady picks up on that <clears throat> with her discernment. And she's able to discern the true spiritual nature of Elisha. Well, that prompted her to hospitality. And in addition to the regular meal, she says, hey, why don't we you know, make an upper room? As I said before, they would build rooms on top of roofs back in the day because the cool winds could blow through their ease better. And so let's make a room for him, some necessities. He can stay there when he's passing through, and they do that. Now that is hospitality. This is hospitality. She took Elisha in as a guest because she wanted to be a blessing to him as he traveled. He's on the road traveling. She sees the opportunity. I can be hospitable here. I can be a blessing to him, and she takes advantage of that. She provides a lodging place. Now, I'm not saying that you, you let every body down the road into your house, you know, to, to show hospitality. Quite frankly, you can't just let anybody in because you could endanger your family. And I've read horror stories of people who have done this. But to show hospitality to the true servants of God, that's a different matter. We've all, we often, in the past, I haven't, we haven't had the opportunity to let, I've had, and I'm sure others you had, have had missionaries in our home and <clears throat> people like this, and they've always been a blessing to us to have them in the home. The Shunammite woman did this type of thing. She was hospitable, and it reminds us later on what the Apostle John says in 3 John, verses 5 to 8. 3 John 5 to 8, he says to the church, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their, on their way in a manner worthy of God. Now, there was in John's day itinerant preachers, itinerant missionaries traveling from place to place, needing a place to stay. And so the church, they looked to the church to open up their homes for this. Now it says strangers, but they were strangers because they had never met, but they get to meet each other, and they find out these are true servants of God. And they stay in their home. They, are, they, they show support and hospitality. That is characteristic of what a believer does. Show hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says we, should, we need to be contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing what? Practicing hospitality, it says. We're to be hospitable. It's the kind of thing some of you did, by the way, a, couple weeks, a few weeks back when the hurricane was on the east coast of Florida. We got a call that said that we may need some church members to help. You know, there was people coming from Myru's Five East Church over, I don't know if you know him or not, good pastor over on the East Coast, uh, coming here to stay with the people in Fellowship Bible Church. But we may need some people from our church to help out, and some of you did that. That's the kind of hospitality. You showed hospitality. This is what believers do. They show hospitality. They help each other out. And then her reward, look at verse 17. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 11, her reward. One day he came there, it says, and he turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. He said to, to him, say now to her, behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken to for the king, to the captain of the army? Interesting that he knew these men in high places like this. 
You want me to say a good word, put in a good word for you? She answered, I live among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly she has no son, and her husband is old. He said to her, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. The woman conceived and bore a son at that, at that season the next year, just like Elijah had said to her. Now, don't think these acts of hospitality from the Shunammite woman went unnoticed. Elijah and his servant Gehazi, obviously Gehazi was, it wasn't just Elisha staying there, it was Gehazi as well. Both of them were there uh, being shown hospitality. They ask her, hey, can we do anything in return for the kindness you've done to us? You've been so kind to us. Can we do anything for you? You've been so careful with all this care. In other words, you've, been, you've gone out of your way. You've shown all these great pains to minister to us, to be kind to us. You've been respectful of us. Now what can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you for the king? Would you like us to talk to the commander of the army? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm over there. I'm saying, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact. She says, no, uh, these are people in high places. They can make your life easier. She says, no, I'm good, basically. No, I'm good. She says, I don't need any political favors. My family is ta- taking care of me. Everything's okay. We're fine. Don't worry about it. But she's, he is insistent. What then is to be done for her? That's the same thing, the same kind of thing he asked in verse 2 of the widow woman. He says, what, uh, what shall I do for you? Everywhere Elisha goes, what can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I minister to you? This would be a good question for us to ask, right? Each other. What can I do to help you, to minister to you? Elisha is there ready to serve God's people. Gehazi says, hey, this woman has no son. Her husband's old. So Elisha doesn't even ask her permission. Doesn't ask her permission. (laughs) Think about this now. Think about this. Doesn't say, hey, would you like to have a a son? None of that. He just says, you're going to have a son. Done. (laughs) Done deal. You're going to have a son next year. That sudden revelation startles a woman. You know, she's like, wait a minute. That was the last thing she thought possible. She could hardly believe, given the circumstances, that this could happen. He says, she says, don't, even, don't lie to me. She knew he wasn't a liar. Was Elisha a liar? No. But she didn't want to get her hopes up. And then, you know, this promise is made. You know, women in Israel, as we've said many times, they, they coveted having children. They wanted to have children. This is a great thing for her. She doesn't want her hopes raised only to have them dashed, though, by a promise that's not going to come true. And she says, don't lie to me. You know, we've seen this before in the Bible, haven't we? Saw it many times. Old New Testament, barren women who are bearing children, right? They have no children. They can't have children. And yet the Lord steps in and gives them children. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and the list goes on, right? See it again and again. God provided a child for them. Now, we read this in Scripture. Oh, well, another barren woman. Yeah, God steps in and does the miracle. Another, we have another child born. It becomes old hat. But it should not become old hat to us when we read this. We should never take the gifts of God for granted. We should never take it for granted. It's totally, this is a totally unexpected gift from God. Their past time of having children, totally unexpected. She has no expectations of having a child, giving up hope from that a long time ago probably. And now she has a child. What a great blessing, right? What a great blessing. She can rejoice that there's this child that's born. But, secondly, an unexpected tragedy. Look at verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that he went to his fathers, to the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. 
And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Now, the wording in the original where it says the child was grown, it doesn't necessarily mean he was full grown. He was growing up. He had reached some age in life. We don't know what age he had reached. But based upon some of the verses later on, I don't get the impression he was fully grown. It's harvest time. His father's out there reaping the harvest. He's got workers out there with him in the field. Suddenly, the son has a major headache, starts running out to the father, yelling, my head, my head. And and then, uh, by the way, the father's servant carries him back, showing this is a wealthy family again, has servants. The the servant carries the child back to the mother. Within hours, he is dead. And they lay him on Elisha's bed. Now, this is the part that perplexes us all. This is where we're perplexed. We ask the question, why, Lord? Why? Why this tragedy? Why did it happen? No one can imagine the Shunammites' unbearable grief, right? Unbearable grief, no doubt, concerning her son. You can't imagine that unless you've experienced it yourself. There's no way. It has to be among the, most, the deepest and most sorrowful of pains. But why? Why does the Lord give and take away? Why does this happen? Why? And the answer is we really don't know. We really don't know. I can tell you this, to say some pious-sounding words to a person who has lost a loved one is not helpful. Not helpful. Better to do what Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those that weep, right? Just be there for them. Weep with those who, who weep. You can hear the grief of the Shunammite. Look at verse 28. The grief of the Shunammite. She says, did I ask for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Why, do you give me, why did you give me a son if you knew this, if this was going to happen? Better not to have had a son at all. Why have the great blessing only to be knocked aside by the great tragedy? Why does this have to happen? And she's asking the question, why, in so many words. Have you ever asked the question, why, like that, when something happens to you? A tragedy or some setback, some misfortune, some adversity, and you say, why, Lord, right? The same God who made her glad by giving her a son now makes her sad. By taking his son away. Job said, the Lord gives, and what? The Lord takes away. That's what he said. Now, she's grieving. She's perplexed, as all of us would be in the same situation. We don't know the why behind this. We don't know the why. behind. Maybe we could find some theological reasons for this. Yes, we could. But in the moment, in the moment when you're suffering, all you know is this. This is painful, and I don't understand what's going on. I had a friend that lost a son. I've told you this many times, but he, he, couldn't, he, he didn't understand why. Why am I losing my 20-year-old son? Why is this happening to me? I was there when it happened. Why is this happening? Sandy was there, too. Why is this happening to us, anyway? Now, he was trusting God. Truly, it was a great testimony, by the way. I was amazed. He was truly trusting God, but he was perplexed. Painful loss. First Corinthians, like 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For we now see in a, in a different context. We now see in a mirror dimly. Uh, enigma is the word. It's like a puzzle, like a riddle to us. Life is like a riddle when we don't know what's going on, really. We're often puzzled about life. We really don't understand what's going on when there's tragedy, right? We really don't get it. We're in the moment. We're uh, puzzled by it. Tragedy is a riddle to us. We're perplexed. Our knowledge is partial. One day we'll fully know, even as we are known, but now the mirror is foggy, right? It's unclear. We don't really get it. You know, I always want to be sensitive to believers in grief. 
when they're suffering a tragedy. But believer, do remember this. Do remember this. There is a difference between a lost person losing a loved one and a believer losing a loved one who is saved. The difference is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, we do not grieve as do those who have no hope. Do we grieve? Yes. Yes, we grieve over tragedy. We grieve greatly over tragedy. I don't want to minimize that ever. Weep with those who weep, right? But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That's the difference. In Christ, we have hope. And we'll be re- reunited one day with our loved ones we'll be re- who have gone before us. We'll be with them. But now, for now, we face the riddle of life. Blessings come our way, but then tragedy come our, comes our way. All the while, knowing that the Lord only is our refuge. How do we figure out? What do we do? The Lord is our refuge, right? And so we see an unexpected gift. Secondly, an unexpected tragedy. And thirdly, a supernatural ending. Supernatural ending, ending in verses 22 to 37. There are four elements that make up the supernatural ending. First of all, the Shunammite's faith. Her faith, look at verse 22. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may, that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, why will, you, why will you go today? It is neither noon, moon, or Sabbath. And she said, it, it will be well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slow down the pace for me. Do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the, Mount, the man of God to Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, there is a Shunammite. Please run out to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she said, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I, not, did I ask for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Now the first thing, notice the first thing she does after her child dies. According to verse 21, <clears throat> look at verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Laid him on the bed of the man of God. Why did she do that? Because she knew that that's where she should turn to in her time of grief. This whole thing began with the man of God. It's going to end with the man of God and her, and her reasoning. You see, Elijah represents God, right? She keeps calling him the man of God, the one who represents God. He's the man of God. She knows that, and that's where she's going to go for help. Where did the, where did the, women, the widow woman in 4, 1 to 7 go for help? Well, when she was in desperate need, when she had the creditor coming to take her children, where did she go? She cries out to Elisha, whom she also calls the man of God in that section. The widow knew where to go for help in her time of desperation, the Shunammite also knows where to go for help in her time of desperation. Verse 22, <clears throat> again, verse 22, she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants, one of the donkeys, that I may do what? That I may run, right? That I may run to the man of God and return. She's on a mission in which there is no delay, no delay at all. She will run to the man of God. Why? He's got an inroad to God. He represents God. Elisha knows God. He's the prophet of God, right? And so it doesn't mean she doesn't know God. But I'm telling you, if I was in her shoes in her time, I think I'd be doing the same thing. And what do we do when tragedy strikes? And, you know, this is difficult to preach this. It truly is, because uh, I'd rather not preach this, I'll be honest with you. But what do we do when tragedy strikes? Where do we go? We run. Do we, do we run away from God and his people? 
or do we run to him? She ran to the man of God, it says. In our emotion, in our pain, we might be tempted to run away from God, right? How many people have done that? We might be tempted to get angry with God or blame God and all these things. This woman is filled with pain. She's filled with sorrow. She makes the decision to run to God, to run to his man, seek out the man of God. She didn't run away from him. Now, I've referenced that section in John 6 many times because I'm always fascinated by that section where there were many people who professed to believe in Jesus, who professed to become disciples of Jesus, and they were turning away from him. They started turning away from him, these professed believers, because he was making certain statements that they were hard to deal with in their mind. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, that didn't go well with many of them. They didn't hear the last part, I'll raise him up on the last day, by the way. They heard this, <clears throat> eats my flesh and drinks my blood. It's a hard saying, right? It's a, hard, a difficult statement. So they left Jesus and quit following him. John 6, 66 says this, As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They went away from him. And Jesus says to his 12 disciples, You do not want to go also away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love this statement, this answer. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? There is nowhere to go except the Lord, right? If we leave the Lord, where shall we go? He says, in effect, we'll be turning our backs on the very one, the only one who has the words of eternal life, the only one who has the answers in life. He says later on, we have, this is similar to the statement uh, the Shunammite made, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where, where else could they go? Where could they turn to? The Lord had blessed this woman, and then the Lord had brought this woman pain and sorrow. What is she to do now? She runs to the man of God. And in, in essence, she's running to God himself. I want to go to where God, I'm in terrible condition here, saddened by this. What do I do now? I run to God. And this, she's like the psalmist in Psalm 121, which says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. Shunammite went to the right source for help, just like the widow woman did. This whole chapter is about this. The God who is sovereign makes heaven and earth is also the one that's our refuge in time of trouble. Her, her husband questions her, why are, you going, why are you going today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath, he says. The new moon is the beginning of the month where the certain offerings are offered, and, and maybe you would go to a prophet for that. And Sabbath day is a holy day. Maybe you'd go to the prophet for that. It's logical in the husband's mind. I can see you going on the Sabbath day or maybe uh, the new moon, but not today. Obviously not Sabbath day or new moon, right? She answers her husband with one word. Look at verse 23. It says, it will be well, but the word, there's only one word in Hebrew, and that is the word shalom. Uh, where, are you going, uh, what, what, where are you going? She says, shalom. That's it. Everything is in italics and nasby except for that one, except for the word well, and that's what it is. And so she says all is well. He doesn't respond to that. So she gets on her donkey and tells her servant, get a move on, let's go. <laughs> and they take the 20-mile trip to Mount Carmel. Elijah sees her at a distance, and he recognizes who it is and immediately recognizes also something else. Something's not right here. Something's not right. You can tell by the way he singles out every member of the family. Did you notice that? He says, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? 
Is it well with the child? Something's not right. He knows it. Each time, by the way, the word, word well trans, uh, translates the word shalom. She, he says, is it shalom with everybody? She says, shalom for the second time. Only it's really not shalom with her. It's really not well with her soul, is it? Verse 27. Elisha says, her soul is troubled within her. She says all's well, but all's clearly not well. You ever done that? You're torn apart by something that's going on in your life, disturbed, frustrated, saddened, sorrowful, and people say, how's it going? Everything's good. It's all good. It's all fine. But it's not fine at all. And, and her soul is not well with her at all. Elijah sees it, but his example is worth following. He doesn't try to counsel her. He says to Gehazi, what? Let her alone. Let her alone. Uh, and then she says, did I, not, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Elijah doesn't say anything to her at all. He says nothing. He knows how troubled she is. You know, for a long time I thought the best initial reaction to someone who's suffering grief and tragedy is not our words, but it's just our presence. It occurred to me one day, you know, we could, I, I saw someone saying many words to someone who was experiencing tragedy, and I could see the other person that was going through one ear and out the other, Christian, both Christians. They don't even know what you're saying at that time. They're so grieving. They're so, such great, great grief. Better just to be there, right? Let them know we're, we're here for you. We love you. We'll do whatever you need done. They're in the depths of despair at that moment. If I launch into a sermon at that time, my words are going to be just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, right? I'm not going to listen to all that. And so Elijah knows that. He says, doesn't he say anything? Just to show that, and he says to the servant, take care of this. Just to show that Elisha the prophet is not the ultimate answer to her faith, he's not the answer ultimately, it's God, the text lets us know he's limited. His limitations are seen in two ways. First of all, his knowledge is limited. Look at verse 27. He says, let her alone, her soul is troubled within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. The Lord has hidden it from me. He isn't told. You know, he's a prophet of God, and these Old Testament prophets knew a lot of stuff, didn't they? God told them a lot of things. They happened to know things in advance. And yet, he doesn't know this. He doesn't know this. Why? Because there's only one who knows all things. That's the Lord, right? He chose to reveal certain things to his prophet Elijah, but not everything. You know, we're, we're, we're limited, aren't we? We find out beings are limited. People come up to us with perplexing questions about things that we have no answer to, that we hope we can try to think of. Well, maybe I can come up with an answer. And we're like, I have no clue what this is. What is the answer? I don't know. We're limited. His, power, his knowledge was limited. Also, his power was limited. Elisha was given a double portion of the spirit of, of Elijah, right? But look what happens in verse 29 to 31. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> you know, the woman says is troubled, and he says to his servant Gehazi, <clears throat> Gird up your loins, take my staff in your hand, go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. <clears throat> Don't greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. Lay, your, lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face. There was no sound of response. So he returned to meet him and told him, The lad has not awakened. Elijah believes that it's sufficient for him to send his servant with his staff, lay it on the child's faith and face, and then the boy's going to rise from the dead. He thinks that's, we'll do it this way, and, and this kid will rise from the dead. 
but he finds out it is not. His power is limited. You know, sometimes the Lord did allow for this kind of thing in healing in the Bible. In the case of Paul, Acts 19.11, it says in Acts 19.11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. It happened there, but here it doesn't happen, right? It's not the case here. Elisha is not allowed to do that. And if Elisha is limited in the power God gave him, we certainly are limited. Everybody's limited. Every believer is limited. Why is this? Why are we so limited in, in what we can do? Why are we so limited? Because 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, to show that the surpassing greatness of the power is of God, it's from God and not from us. Because it glorifies God that we're limited, that's why. Because we have to trust an unlimited God. Lord used certain people to perform miracles in the Bible, but the power is always from God. We depend upon him. But the woman is persevering. She's persevering in her faith. Look at verse 30. She says, I'm not leaving you. <laughs> I'm not leaving you until this thing is done. You sent him down the road to, with this staff. I'm not leaving you until I see something happen here. She's not giving up. <clears throat> she wants her son brought back to life, and she perseveres in her faith. Now, there's times in the Bible... You know, whenever you do this, you have a bunch of exceptions and questions and all this, right? There's times in the Bible when the Lord did not heal people. There's, where he did not heal people. There's times in the Bible where he did heal people. Remember Paul in 2 Timothy 4.20? What did he say? I left my fellow worker, Trophimus, sick in Miletus. I left him there sick. Why didn't God heal this guy, Trophimus? It's his will, right? His sovereign will. That is his sovereign choice. But the point here is that the woman is clinging to God with her faith, clinging to the man of God. Her faith is in the Lord. That's the first thing. And secondly, the prophet's prayer. You have the woman's faith. You have the prophet's prayer, verses 32 and 33. When Elisha came to the house, behold, the lad was dead, laid on his bed. So now he sees this firsthand. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. You know, the the first thing didn't work, right? I'm going to send the staff and try to get that. No, it didn't work. So now he prays. It's almost as if he had Matthew 6, 6 at his fingertips. This is the verse I thought of when I read this. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Elijah is, Elisha is limited. He knows this now, right? He probably knew it anyway. He's got to go to the unlimited God. He's got to pray to the Lord who is unlimited. And, it's, and he does. Yeah, that's true any time, but when, we're, when it, we're dealing with people here in desperate situations in 2 Kings 4, and when you're desperate or when you're helping someone who's in a desperate situation, who's grieving, you must always look to the Lord, right? Prayer is where you go to in crisis. You pray. You, ask, you trust the Lord. The very fact that we're limited motivates us to pray. We know we're limited, knowing that we don't have any resource outside of the Lord, ultimately. So he prays, and then the Lord's miracle. Look at verse 34. And he went up and lay on the child, put his mouth, it says, on his mouth, and his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself on him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned, and he walked in the house once back and forth, and went up and stretched himself on him. And and the lad sneezed seven times, and the lad opened his eyes. Now this is similar. This is why I had Daniel read this section, 1 Kings 17. Very similar, if you want to read that again, to, to how the widow's son was raised in 1 Kings 17. 
Very similar methods. Now, as to the strange method he used here, there's no explanation except to say the prophet had definitely underestimated the difficulty of the task. He thought, send this staff, my staff over there, we'll cover this one. No, it didn't work. <laughs> he thought that he could do it that way, but it didn't happen. So I think that this full contact, this is my thought, of his on the child, with the child, is his way of saying, just as I am full of life, so do I want you to be full of the same life. And I want you to be alive just like I am. And so not only does he pray, but he gives full commitment by this act, this symbolic act, at least by doing this. I don't think it's some form of resuscitation either. Some weird form of resuscitation because the child is clearly dead. It says he's actually dead. But this, this is what he does. And at first, but he, the, the, the key here is prayer. At first, the child's flesh becomes warm. It's a gradual miracle, by the way. And then after a short walk in the house, maybe even praying while he's walking, it doesn't say, he comes back and he stretches himself on the child again. And this time there's an obvious sign of life. The child sneezes seven times, which was no doubt music to the ears of Elijah, right? Those seven sneezes. And the Lord does the miracle. Not Elijah, the Lord does the miracle. And then fourthly, the Shunammite's gratitude. Look at verse 36. Her gratitude, he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came in to him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground, and she took up her son and went out. Her actions say it all. She's extremely grateful for what God has done. How often do we pray and ask God to do something, and then he does something, and we don't, we don't, we're not thankful for it. We just take it for granted, like, well, that should have happened anyway, right? Oftentimes we're like that, but she's beyond grateful. She's falling at the feet of Elisha in gratitude. She's rewarded for her faith. Is that the end of the story? Well, there's another comment made, not here, but it's, there's a comment made about this in Hebrews 11.35, the chapter of faith. Hebrews 11.35 says this, <clears throat> talking about the faith of God's people in a faithful God, it says in Hebrews 11.35, women, plural, women, receive back their dead by resurrection, it says. And talking about the, saint, the people of faith in the Old Testament, women receive back their dead by resurrection. The two women referred to here are the, the widow woman of Zarephath, 1 Kings 17, Daniel read, and this one, the Shunammite woman, 2 Kings 4. God rewarded her faith. God is faithful. And so this, this account here in 2 Kings 4 is designed to show that life is a mix of blessings as well as pain, first of all. You see that. That's how life is. We don't know what's on tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow may bring, right? We don't know. And it's also meant to show us that the Lord is powerful. Even death itself cannot defeat him. He's even, he even conquered death as Christ conquered death when he was raised again from the dead. Now, the question comes, yeah, but why doesn't the Lord do these kind of miracles now? Why, is he, why does he, do, why does he, he, he clear out hospitals now? You know, it was never the Lord's intent to empty all the, to empty all the cemeteries of, of every generation. It was never his intent to do this even jesus did not do that when he was on earth jesus had the power to raise everybody from the dead right and he did raise some but he didn't raise everybody why because like the scripture says we're under the curse of sin and the wages of sin is what wages of sin is death that's how it is because we are under the curse of sin but and i want you to take this with you we're not without hope we're not without hope for our loved ones in christ who have gone before us we're not without hope. 
Look at, let's close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We'll close with this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Great passage. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve, so that you will not grieve as those do, as do the rest who have no hope. Many people have no hope, but you don't have to be that way because you do have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what? <clears throat> Comfort one another. Comfort one another with these words. We will see our loved ones again who know the Lord. We will be together with the saints forever and eternity. That is our hope. On earth, we face sickness. We face suffering, we face death, but as Titus 2.13 says, we're looking for that blessed hope, right? The appearing of the glorious God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in this uncertain world, and you know it's uncertain, this world of pain and this world of death, that is where our focus must be. That is where our focus must be. That's where our comfort lies. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word again tonight. We pray, Lord even though it's, we, we, we see the tragedy taking place and we're troubled by that, even as we read the words in the Old Testament uh, that happened years ago, we're troubled by it because we know it happens in our day and time too and to all of us. And we just pray, Lord, that whatever happens to us, we commit ourselves to you, we put ourselves in your hands, Lord. We pray we'll trust in you, love you, serve you, take our refuge in, in you, Lord, trust in you for all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.